You're listening to Ideas on Europe, a podcast by UACES, the Membership Association for Contemporary European Studies. Well, thank you, uh, listeners, for listening to this podcast. We're here in the UACES Graduate Forum in Manchester Metropolitan University. My name is Carlos Bravo, and uh, I'm here with uh, Laura Gelhaus. She is a PhD student at both the University of Oric and uh, Geneva. She's on her third year at the moment. And basically, she's having a look at the uh, common agricultural policy from a very novel perspective, uh, that of foreign policy analysis, actually. And she's also having a bit of a focus on the European neighborhood policy, uh, more specifically on the case of Georgia. It's actually for me a pleasure to be here with you. The purpose of this interview is uh, actually to hear a little bit about your research. So actually, I have a few questions for you. Since you're actually having a look at the European Union foreign policy, I was wondering whether you can talk about the evolution of the European Union foreign policy making. What I'm doing in this paper is looking at how the foreign policy has evolved so far Mm -hmm. from basically nothing and it being very intergovernmental to something that has a common dimension. So we now have, you know, common foreign and security policies that are evolving in the Union. We also had in 2016, Federica Mogherini and the European External Action Service putting out the global strategy for the EU's external action, which I think was a landmark document. What will happen after these elections and how the EU looks right now I would be rather pessimistic when it comes to traditional foreign policy issues such as what's understood as security or diplomacy because we have Eurosceptic governments in the Council, which is the important actor in EU foreign policy, that are likely to block any significant integration in these areas. At the same time, we have a stalling on the enlargement process, which deprives the EU of its most important, arguably most effective foreign policy instrument, which is accession conditionality. So what I say in my paper is that it's likely that the EU is going to move into using its sectoral policies that are on a common level, that are Europeanized, to follow its foreign policy goals, such as also democratization is a, is a big part of EU foreign policy. And these can be followed not only through traditional foreign policy, but also through sectoral policies. And in my case, I would say agricultural policies can have aspects that can be used for foreign policy. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Laura. I think it's a very clear answer. So I had actually another question because I was curious uh, about this uh, somewhat novel approach that you have to the study of uh, the common agricultural policy, especially you're having a look at the external dimension of this initiative, actually. So what can you tell us about about this, this external dimension of the common agricultural policy? Well, there's quite a few external dimensions of the common agricultural policy. On the one side, we have the market side of it. Obviously, the EU is a large producer and exports its agricultural products. The academic debate thus far on the external dimension of the common agricultural policy is quite restricted to that, to protectionism of the EU, to the impacts of trade in agricultural products. What I'm looking at is the second dimension of the common agricultural policy, which is rural development. The rural development policy is is the second pillar of the common agricultural policy. 
And especially in EU discourse, it's quite an important one because it describes the model of agriculture the EU thinks it has and the types of rural areas the EU wants to see within itself and wants to support within itself, small farmers, vibrant rural communities and so on. And what I find quite interesting is that there's instruments within this rural development policy that are externalized to other countries. So my case study is Georgia. There's flagship program of uh, DG Agri, which is LIDA. LIDA is a local, it has a local approach in so far that funding is decided on for, for rural development by local actors, so-called local action groups. So civil society on the local level, local administrations and local businesses come together in a group and decide on rural development funding. This is exported to the candidate countries, but also now to Georgia, which is a neighborhood country. And this is quite interesting because it has these not only rural development goals, but I would argue also civil society and democratization goals within it because it in, in when you look at the documents it aims at mobilization of people, especially of women and young people, to engage in decision making on the local level. That's what I find quite interesting about it. Okay, thank you. Also, I mean, reading your research, I noticed that uh, you are taking also quite of an innovative approach in the sense that you are approaching the external action of the European Union from a very micro perspective, uh, as opposed to most contributions so far that have been looking at this phenomenon from a more macro perspective. So why do you think it's worth having a look at this from this very micro level? Yeah, as, as you said, I think most contributions so far are quite on the macro level and look at governments pretty much only or elites. What I think is important about the micro level is that these are the people that are, for instance, when it comes to agricultural policy, the most affected by EU relations. It's not the elites that will greatly suffer if agricultural policy goes wrong. It's people in rural areas. The EU addresses people in rural areas. Why don't we actually study what those people think about what's happening and how they're impacted by EU policy? This also then leads to, to greater questions of the legitimacy of the EU. You can study, you know, the, the impact of other actors. Do people, you know, tend to see the EU or other actors in, for instance, Russia, China as, as more important? And these questions, I think, are really important to study at the micro level because it leads to you know, questions of public acceptance, but also of, of real policy impact where it happens. Could you tell us a little bit about the main findings that you've got so far? This is your third year already, so maybe you already have some story to tell. When, because we've talked about LIDA a bit, my, my other case study are geographical indications, which are place-based uh, certifications of products regarding their, their location of production or origin. Depends a bit on, on how you um, conceptualize it. With both of the cases that I've looked at, what we find on the local level is that it doesn't necessarily benefit the small players. It doesn't necessarily benefit the powerless, which is something that, as I said, Leader looked at, you know, empowering and mobilizing young people, women, and, and other marginalized groups. This doesn't necessarily happen. What happens is that elites 
local elites as well are further empowered by these programs, even though those programs aim at the decentralization of, of rule development making, they, I'd argue, create other centers being, you know, local centers and the elites within those. I think that's the, the biggest finding across all of the cases that I've looked at is that elites are further empowered while the marginalized still don't necessarily gain from the instruments. Okay, thank you very much, Laura. I think your, your, your answers were actually very clear and I hope that anyone that could be listening to this podcast might find them interesting. I certainly did. Thank For more UACES podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast and don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.